Mac Power Users, Episode 74, Workflows with Don McAllister. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, along with David Sparks. Hi, David. Hi, Katie. And building off our uh, podcasting episode from last week, we thought we'd kick it up a notch and learn all about screencasting with the guru of screencasting, the master of screencasting, Don McAllister. Hi, Don. Good afternoon. Hi, hi, David. Hi, Katie. How are you doing? I'm so excited to have you on our show. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Oh, thanks for inviting me. No, I, I appreciate it. And congratulations on the show, by the way. You seem to be going from strength to strength with the uh, the five by five thing and everything. So, uh, doing really well. Yeah, it is. We're having a great time. You know, the the reason, one of the reasons I love Don McAllister, first of all, is he's probably the nicest guy in the the Mac universe. But uh, I met you, I don't know if you remember, I met you in the Starbucks in um, San Francisco, outside Moscone. Oh, yeah. You know, you and I were sitting out there and uh, we couldn't get into keynotes. And I introduced Um, myself to you. Remember back in those days? (laughs) Oh yeah, that yeah. must have been. Was that the iPhone? Uh, I don't remember. I've lost track. Yeah. But the um, right. either way, uh, you know what I really like is that uh, your show is so good about getting new people into the Mac, and it has saved my bacon so many times because now I've got all these people in my life getting Macs, and <laughs> what I do is I get them a subscription to Screencast Online, or even better now you've got these apps uh, that got the intro. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you know you show up with your Liverpool accent and you just kill it, you know, right. <laughs> and, and then they don't call me and say, well, I don't get what button I use to close a window because, you know, Don McAllister showed them how. So anyway, you do a great job. I, I really think that it's hard to understate how good a job you do at making these screencasts and having made a few of myself, I know how ridiculously hard it is. So I thought it'd be a lot of fun to talk to you today about how you pull that off. Okay. Yeah. And yep, thank we you. should I, mention that they're not just for beginners or newbies because I watch your screencasts online and I learn something all the time too. I don't yeah. think an episode goes by that I don't pick something up. That's the the funny thing. The, the audience is so wide and varied and it does cause me a problem in some respects sort of deciding what to do. Um, but, you know, I do get lots of feedback from from all sorts of people and, and the, the audience is so wide ranging. And as you say, even those people who are, who are power users, um, that they will sit down and watch an episode and they'll always pick one or two or three, four uh, three or four things out of a single episode that they thought it was a subject they already covered and, and knew very, very well. But there's, there's always one little nugget in there that they come away with. And of course, you know, that's the, um, that's what I try to do. Sort of keep it. I try to look for the wow factor in things as well. And I, I don't um, do things I don't enjoy. I, I only really cover subjects that I, I enjoy and I'm enthusiastic about. And of course, when you're putting the screencast together, you, you tend to delve a bit more deeply than you would normally use an application because you really have to sort of find out how the nuts and bolts work. And uh, from that, you know, I, I probably go a little bit deeper than most people just using an application for, on a day-to-day basis. And that's where, you know, these hidden nuggets come out of really. Yeah, I really think that's true. People get an app and they learn it as much as they need to get mm-hmm get it working for them and they stop. And that's an easy thing to do because you're busy and you have a lot of work to do. You're not going to dig through every preference and find out every little power tip. And Mm -hmm. so watching the screencast you do really gives you a chance to, to learn things that you probably would not have got to otherwise. 
That's right. And I think that the developer knows are in there, but they, you know, they they have difficulty in exposing all the functionality in either uh, written manuals or in, you know, literature on a website. But the screencast, you can actually show people and sort of take them in, lead them through. And again, I think there's a bit of a knack really in structuring the screencast to take them through a logical flow so that they uh, sort of lead from one place to another and it's, it's all logically arranged and it sort of builds on itself as well. So by the end, you know, you've had a good overview of what the entire application does. And so the web the website is screencast online, and mm-hmm. now you're doing two kinds of screencasts. You're doing Mac tutorials where you walk through how to use something on your Mac and iOS tutorials. So right. depending on what device or platform you're on, you're probably covered. Yeah, I mean, it, I, when it originally started, I mean, I've been doing this for for just over six years now, and of course at that time, you know, we didn't have iOS, so it was a Mac show, and uh, I, I sort of do uh, a tutorial every week. And then when uh, when the iPhone came out and then the iPad, uh, I was sort of torn, to be honest, because it's still, you know, the, the, the core thing was a Mac show. And I thought, well, lots of Mac people do have iPhones and iPads, etc. So I'll throw a couple of iOS shows in there as well. And uh, it's very difficult because... Uh, it's strangely enough that there are Mac users that have no interest in the iPhone and iPad, <laughs> which I, I find is really weird. But, uh, you know, I, I did get some kickback from people saying, well, actually, you know, I'd, I'd rather you stuck to the Mac stuff and, uh, okay, just do one iOS thing every now and again. And, and there's so much stuff now in, in the iOS sphere that uh, I really felt I wasn't doing it justice. So I sort of took the decision to sort of boost my output to two shows a week and, and concentrate on the Mac on one and iOS on the other. And then people have then got the option of either going down the Mac route, down the iOS route, because again, in the future, I think we'll see more and more people who have no interest in the Mac, but have iPhones and iPads and are interested in those sort of tutorials. So there'll be a separate stream for those. Or, you know, for the general Mac user who has both, they can actually get both tutorials. Yeah, Yeah, we'll actually swing the other way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, could do. So what for someone who has never seen or never downloaded a, a screencast before, I think you've got a, a unique distribution bot model, or at least it was unique at the time. And now, and now we all think of, of this podcasting type distribution model as, as something that's always been there. But when you did it, 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 it was something that was brand new. So how, how does someone go about getting a screencast from you to watch it? Well, it, it did start off uh, as a hobby. I, I, I used to work in corporate IT, and, and the, the whole screencast thing, uh, I've told this many times, so if people have already heard this, I'm sorry, but uh, it, it all started off, I actually got a Mac. I'm a relatively new Mac user. I only started using the Mac about seven years ago when the very first Mac Mini came out. I'd always been a PC guy up till then, and I'd sort of worked with, I, uh, worked with PCs in, in IT, and uh, I'd sort of become a bit jaded, a bit disillusioned with the, the whole, you know, Windows environment and using the computer. I used to really enjoy it, and that sort of lost the enthusiasm. And then I saw a, a keynote with uh, Steve Jobs, and he introduced the Mac Mini and uh, iPhoto albums. And I thought, well, when the Mac Mini came out, it was it was so cheap. I thought it was worth a risk, you know, just to see what all the fuss was about. And Who then, know, you know, right? That Mac oh, Mini yeah, is going to change your life. Amazing, absolutely amazing. And so, you know, when they came to the UK, I got one, and uh, within two or three days, I was hooked. You know, that was it then, and you know, the rest is history. So basically, I, I, I thought, well, I need to share my enthusiasm for the Mac. And uh, I was going to do an audio podcast and I got the domain name set up and I worked out how I was going to do it. And then I sort of sat down in front of the microphone and went, <laughs> I had nothing to say. Like, Ooh, what are we going to do? Because Adam was already doing it at that point. So there, there was no way go, going up against Adam, you know, he was doing such a great job. So I, uh, I sort of left it for a bit. And then a, a relative of mine also wanted a Mac. I sort of talked her into getting a Mac. Well, she saw I was so enthused about the Mac. So she got a Mac and I wanted to show her how to do some of the basics. And I, I just started to record some short videos for her. 
um, screencasts, which is, you know, just capturing the, the screen and doing a narration and just explaining the various bits and pieces. And then once I'd done two or three of those, I realized, well, hang on a minute, this is a piece of media. This is a, this is a video file that I could actually distribute as a podcast. So I, I started to do, I, I set up screencasts online. I uh, just sent the first couple out as, as a standard podcast because as you say, at the time it was, it was all very new, really. Uh, being able to deliver video, you know, high quality video content um, just through an RSS feed was fantastic. So I, I did that as a hobby uh, probably for about five or six months, but it did take up an awful lot of time because as David said, you know, the production process in creating a screencast is, is quite intense, really. Even if it's a short screencast, you still spend hours and hours putting it together. So that was how it all started, really. It was a, it was a, um, a hobby, and I was distributing sort of all these screencasts as a, as a podcast. And then it turned into a job. Yeah, it's sort of, um, it was, I never set out with the intention of doing it full time, but it, I just was enjoying it so much. And um, people always think it's strange, but people started to, Ask, uh, ask if they could send me money for it because it was, you know, they realized that I was spending a lot of time. They were getting a lot of value out of it. And also the, there were bandwidth charges, et cetera. So I sort of went from, from doing it as a hobby to sort of like a donation bucket. And then um, after a couple of months, I thought, well, hang on, if I add some extra whistles and bells and um, do slightly more uh, intensive screencasts, perhaps I could actually turn it into a business. And then, you know, after some initial tries i thought well let's go for it and i, I gave up my corporate job and i'm plunged in full time which makes you awesome <laughs> well it was quite scary at the time but the, the nice thing was, i mean I, I couldn't go from what i decided to do uh, rather than looking at advertising or sponsorship i, I decided to go with a, a membership system so you know people i'd still i still wanted to give content away free i didn't just want to one day sort of be a free podcast and then a paid for podcast so over the course of the next year or so i went from sort of like three free shows and one paid for show to sort of like three paid shows and one free show so you know it took a while to 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 sort of go across to the membership system but uh, that was the route i decided to take and uh, and that's yeah it has worked out very very well so how do you go go ahead kenny now, I was going to say how do you decide exactly what you're going to screencast on on any particular week and then learn how to use that program or learn how you're going to t- rather teach that program sure. uh, to someone who may have some familiarity with it or no familiarity with that whatsoever. Yeah, that's, that's a difficult one, really, because, uh, as I say, I try to only cover things that I'm enthused about. So um, I, I, I try, well, I don't sort of publish a roadmap of like, this, these are the shows I'm going to do over the next three months, because literally, I don't know. Uh, I literally only decide like a week or two weeks before what it is I'm going to do. I mean, I have a spreadsheet with some ideas and some topics and some uh, applications that I would like to cover eventually. But, yeah, I'm familiar uh, with one of those spreadsheets, aren't you, Katie? Don't we have something like that? <laughs> I, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, so we I do. Just, I just sort of, you know, um, when the time comes to prepare for it, just have a look at the spreadsheet, see what's going on, or, or see if there's something that's just come out that's, you know, really of the moment, and uh, I might suddenly just decide to do that. Like, for instance, the new um, the new Tweetbot application for the iPad came out a couple of days ago, and uh, I, I can sort of now write, you know, it, it's a fantastic application. I'm really enthused about it, so I might do that next week. 
you know, I can, I can really do it literally within a couple of days and have it published, you know, the same week. And, and that sort of being of the moment and being very contemporary and, and up to date is is quite useful really for people because they can see something as it comes out and then I can sort of deliver a screencast for it straight away pretty much. Uh, as for pre- preparation and, and sort of uh, learning it to teach it, um, and I'm fortunate in that I can pick up applications pretty quickly, uh, sort of, um, I can I can sort of get an application, pull it apart and understand it fairly quickly and, and then create the outline of how I would like to teach that to somebody. Yeah, I think one of the ways that you're you're very gifted in is that you have a unique ability to pull it out and go in depth and see features that people may have never looked at. Um, and for example, one of my my favorite applications or utilities that I use on my Mac is CrashPlan. And you I've been using it for months. You did a tutorial on CrashPlan. And I must have learned seven or eight new things about how the the software works because I just, okay, I installed it and it's working and it's doing what I wanted it to and I left it alone. Not realizing that I could go in deeper and, oh, look, I can configure it this way or, oh, look, I can have people back up to me. And and, Mm -hmm. and you really were able to dig in deep to the different topics, break them down and explain it. And, um, you know, I learned quite a bit from that particular. I I think one of the things that sort of, uh, enables that is the fact that I'm actually going to be teaching it to people, showing people. And I, I sort of really don't want to miss anything because I'd hate to miss a, a crucial aspect of a particular software package. So I, I sort of try and make doubly sure that I've got all the bases covered so that no one can actually turn around and say, well, actually, you know, you missed a whole section out here. We can do this with it. So I'm always very conscious of the fact that uh, even if I don't go in depth, I try and cover every aspect of the application or service so that people have got a good idea. And again, it's not, um, you know, the, the tutorials I do aren't four or six hour sort of long programs of tutorials. And you, there are some vendors that, that actually do that. These are very much uh, half an hour, 40 minutes uh, of the enough information to get you going with an application. And then if you want to learn more about it, you know, there are other resources. But it's very much uh, um, to save you half a day examining an application and see whether or not it's for you. You know, you can watch a half-hour screencast and understand very, very quickly how it fits in, what you can do with it, whether or not it would be the right application for you to do. So um, that, that's why I try and keep it to like half an hour, 40 minutes, uh, and, and cover all the bases, really. And are all there right. any utilities that you use to do some of that planning? Are you outlining? Are you pen and paper? Are you sketching ideas to yourself? Do you script out these shows? How, how do you create right. this, this yeah, format for yourself preparation, um, preparation really is um, outlining uh, I use on the outliner to create um, an overall outline not a very detailed one the only detailed part really is probably the introduction um, when I sort of put together a couple of paragraphs just to introduce the application and, and position it really and, and explain what it is I'm going to do and then from that point on, it's really sort of high-level topics and uh, and bullet points of the various features. Uh, if there's specific things I want to cover, I'll, I'll, I'll make a note of it in the outline. But it's very much a, a high-level outline that I, I just refer to as I'm recording each segment. And Don, so, Don you don't script out what you're going to say, correct? No, no, I don't. That, that, to be honest, that would be impossible um, to do a 40-minute show every week and have it scripted. I, I, it just wouldn't be possible to... One, to prepare the script properly, and then to actually record and do a verbatim script at the same time. So it has to be, uh, it, once the initial scripting part is done, the outline is done, it, it has to be pretty much from the seat of your pants, really, and, and just um, a sort of conversational, fairly natural flow of explaining things to people. Yeah, and that's, that's the way I screencast, too. And I tell you, I find it really, really difficult sometimes not mm-hmm. to make a complete idiot of myself when I start <laughs> yakking away while I'm doing stuff on the computer. <laughs> but yeah. you, you're so good at it. I, I think that really is well, a talent. I think, it, 
I think you get a knack as well of of because uh, it was quite difficult in the early days, but now you sort of you can hear what it is you're saying yourself. If that sounds right, you know, you, you'll say something and then you'll think, actually, that didn't sound too good, so I'll I'll just repeat that bit. Uh, a lot of it is trying to maintain continuity as well. Um, in the early days, I used to spend a lot of time uh, editing. I still spend quite a bit of time editing, but you know, to trying to keep the continuity together. Um, so that you don't sort of go from one screen to another screen or uh, or, or the, the, there's no logical flow in what you're actually saying. You know, if you have a gap, if you, if you record something and then go away for half an hour and then come back, you know, it has to uh, be seamless that you, you never, you it's it's been like one session. So yes. I think you sort of pick up that as experience as, as you do more and more of them. Uh, you know, the other thing I find when I screencast and I do have breaks, I notice the clock changed and, you know, things have changed. So if people are watching, they'll realize that, I had to go off and be a moron for like 20 minutes before I came back. But yeah, that's why I try and, you know, when, when I do the, the Mac ones anyway, it's a, it's a fairly plain desktop with no times and no dates and things. And uh, in fact, I have a complete separate build for the screencast so that, um, you know, there's none of my sort of um, normal documentation and uh, all the applications. I used to find people used to get sort of sidetracked by... When I when I did it without a special build, you know, they'd be looking at all the menu bar icons and saying, what does that do? And send me emails. What's that third icon to the right? What does that do? And, you know, if I always felt a bit strange going into my sort of document folders yeah. and stuff. So I do a completely clean build now when I ever do a screencast. So we want to welcome a new sponsor to Mac Power users, and that is Gazelle.com. So, David, you know, there are rumors that there, there might be a, a new iPad coming out sometime soon. Yeah, that's what the Internet says. So it must be true. That's what the Internet says. Are you going to get one? Oh, you bet. I mean, if if it's true that it's got double pixels, you know, the retina display or whatever they're going to call it, I there's no way I could resist it. Right. You know, I'm due. I skipped the iPad 2. I'm still on my original iPad, so I, I think I am more than due for an iPad 3. How's that for justification? Yeah, and you know, Gazelle's really the perfect way to sell an old iPad. You know, when I sold my Generation 1 iPad, I did it on Craigslist. It was like misery. So, you know, this guy wants to meet me behind Costco, like, you know. Like Next to the dumpster? Dr- yeah, it's like a drug deal or something. And then he shows up, and we had agreed to a price. And, of course, he shows up with like $40 less than we agreed to because he thinks he can chisel me at the last minute because now I've driven to the back of Costco to sell this thing, and I just want to get rid of it. You know, everything that can go wrong with those types of transactions seems like it goes wrong whenever I try it. Gazelle is different. You know, you just, you go online, you tell them what you have, you tell them the condition, and they give you a price. And you say yes or no. And if you say yes, they send you a box, they pay for the box, you put your device in there, you send it back to them, and then you get a check in the mail. Or they give it to you through PayPal or a Amazon gift card. They've got all these different ways they can pay you. But you don't have to deal with any, you know surreptitious meetings at the basket of Costco or have some guys not show up with enough cash, you know, exactly what you get. And, you know, you don't have to deal with that nonsense. I, I just can't recommend it enough. I started using Gazelle a while ago and now that's the only way I sell my old electronics. Right. And they'll take more than iPads, obviously. They'll they'll do iPhones, they'll do iPads, they'll do MacBooks, they'll do other Apple products, they'll do other small portable electronics. And if anything, you can send a bunch of stuff to Gazelle at a time. If anything in the box that you're sending to Gazelle is valued at a dollar or more, they will pay for the shipping. And even if you've got stuff that has really no or low value, Gazelle will take care of making sure that it's recycled responsibly and that any data off the, the hard drive is wiped. So uh, it's really just a, a good and responsible 
responsible service to get rid of not only the electronics that you want to get paid for, but also some of the electronics that, you know, perhaps you don't know what to do with and you want to make sure that they're recycled responsibly. So you can go over to gazelle.com. That's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com. You might want to go over now, avoid the rush because, you know, the longer you wait, the more these things diminish in value. And a lot of people will be trying to get rid of their iPads after the new one is announced. Um, and check out the price, see what it's worth. You know, like David, I've, I've used Gazelle to sell iPhones. It was quick. It was painless. From the point in time I started the process, I sent it to them. I had my check back, I, I want to say within a week. It was, it was wonderful. And then you can yeah. go buy all the accessories. And you can, they, you know, you can sell your, you can sell your MacBook on there. Just anything you bought that's got an Apple logo on, they're probably going to have a price for you to uh, sell it so you can get yourself some new gear. The, um, if you do go there, though, make sure when you check out that you tell them you found out about it from us. So it's important that they know that you know advertising this podcast helped them find some business. And uh, send them a note if you uh, found them because of us as well. We'd appreciate that. Yeah, And uh, thanks to Gazelle for their sponsorship of Mac Power users. Go out and get rid of your stuff and go buy some new stuff. All right. Now, now tell us about your rig. When you, so when you're recording, let's first talk, let's focus on the Mac to begin with. We're going to mm-hmm. talk about the iOS in a minute. But sure. so so what are you using to record these in terms of hardware and software? Right. I I tend to um, my main machine that I record on is the MacBook Air. So I have an 11 inch MacBook Air with uh, an external monitor. And I, now that I tend to- that strikes me as an interesting choice. Why why? record on something as small as the MacBook Air when I, I know you'll get into it later that you have mega monitors all around you. And yeah, fleets it's, of it's, Mac Pros. Don't you have fleets of Mac Pros? <laughs> <laughs> there's a couple. Yeah, there's a couple. Um, I mean, the, this latest gen MacBook Air is a brilliant machine. It, it's it's very powerful. Uh, it's I, I only ever had... I, I did record on the first gen MacBook Air when it came out. And even that was was good enough to do the screencast, except for when I did an iTunes episode once and I couldn't get the uh, the visualizer to actually capture the, the decent frame rate. But uh, no, the MacBook Air, it, it just seems... Um, um, nice and portable, and I think the idea was that if I if I travel and need to work away as well, that I'd, I'd like to do screencasts on you know on a portable machine. Not that I ever do, um, but if the option is there, if I wanted to, you know, I could actually take it somewhere else, or I could go to a hotel room and record a screencast if I wanted to. Now, Don, did, just, let me just yeah. divert you for a second. Now, did you are you using the eleven or the thirteen inch? Uh, it's the eleven, but with an external monitor plugged in. Is it the is it the new super duper Thunderbolt monitor? Um, no, no, no. It's it's an old, um, an old Dell nineteen uh, inch monitor. Oh, really yeah. old Dell nineteen inch. And, monitor. and then, how do you like? Because you use the thirteen, and then you switch the eleven. How did that go for you? That's great. Yeah, um, because really, I when I'm recording, I record on the external monitor anyway. So the fact that it's an eleven inch doesn't make any difference, and it's a it's a nice machine for portability. Um, I don't really do much editing on it, to be honest. It's mainly just for the recording. But the 19-inch monitor, um, what I can do is I can change the resolution of that monitor sort of independently and, and get it to uh, either 1280 by 720 or 1600 by 900. They're the two resolutions that I record in. And I use an, an application called Switch Res X to actually create those uh, non-standard resolutions on the external monitor. The, um, you know, the reason I ask is totally selfish. I, this year, I've decided I'm going to get an external monitor for my standing desk. And... Mm-hmm. 
And I'm thinking about Thunderbolt, which means I'd have to up, upgrade my uh, my MacBook Air because the the MacBook Airs I have the generation doesn't support the Thunderbolt. But huh? that, that seems like an interesting justification. I think I have to get a Thunderbolt monitor so I can upgrade my MacBook. To yeah, the I think version. it works that way. Somehow in my brain it works that way. But I'm really thinking about the 11, although I'm not sure if I could deal with it or not. I have to decide. Well, anyway, it's really it, it's surprising how quickly you get used to the um, the screen size. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's it's the it's the machine. If I'm not using my iPad when I'm sitting in front of the TV, it's the machine that goes in front of me at the t- you know, when I'm in front of the TV. Uh, it's great for traveling. It's very light. It's very portable, and it's extremely powerful. It is yeah. extremely. I did some um, uh, benchmarks between this and my uh, the, the Mac Pro. The main Mac Pro I use is a 2008 Mac Pro with eight cores, and it wasn't far off the performance as far as video encoding and editing. It was it was you know it was pretty damn pretty damn close to my old Mac Pro. And so for years I've known you and I see these screenshots where you have like 10 or I think 20 cores. Is it now? Is it 20? I don't know. Right. In your menu bar, right. It shows all the little dials or is it 30? I don't know. How many do you have? No, no, no. no. I still, still got my, uh, my 2008 Mac Pro with the, uh, with the cores. I've actually got two of them. Uh, I've got like a spare, uh, which I, I, Ostensibly, it's a, it's a spare machine in case this one blows up, and I can just switch to that one. But I'm, I'm sort of looking it for uh, distributed encoding. I sort of not had much success, to be honest, with uh, using it, using both of them together to encode across both machines. But um, yeah, no, it's still the 2008, so it's still yeah, it's fairly long in the tooth now, I suppose. Like four yeah. years old. Yeah, but but you, now you use, but you really you're using your MacBook Air to do the recording. So where does the Mac Pro fit into it, other than the encoding part? Um, I use that for the editing. So I have a, a, a big Dell monitor on, on the Mac Pro. So what I tend to do is just record on the MacBook Air and then uh, copy the resultant uh, screen captures that I've created. So so on the MacBook Air, probably worth telling you about the, the audio as well. So I'm recording the audio at the same time. So I have an Ederol, um, I think it's a UA1X, seems to ring a bell, which is a, a USB interface that I uh, plug into the MacBook Air and then I capture, I have a, a mixer. In fact, if on my blog, on the, uh, the MacScreencastGuy.com blog, there's a, there's a page on there which describes all the equipment, so uh, people can have a look at that. But basically, I have a USB um, audio interface into the MacBook Air, so I record the audio at the same time as I'm recording the video. And then I use ScreenFlow, so I, I capture it all in ScreenFlow. I, I recently started to um, edit as I record. Uh, what I used to do is just go ahead and, and blast and, and do a long recording and then uh, either edit it myself or, or get some other people to do the sort of assembly edit, as I call it, you know, to cut out all the breaks and all the uh, the fluffs that I do. But I've started to um, do the first sort of level of editing in ScreenFlow as I'm recording, and that seems to speed up the process quite a bit. So at the end of the process, anyway, yeah. Yeah, can I just interrupt there for a minute? Mm -hmm. So ScreenFlow is an amazing app. I think that they've really brought the the ability to create screencasts forward for a lot of people. Because when we first started doing this, I used to do it with you too, and you'd have to record it in some kind of application that just got the raw video. And then you'd have to put it in final cut pro and you'd have to custom build your motion graphics. And so much of that stuff now is done in ScreenFlow. In fact, I looking at some of the older stuff you did, I can't imagine how many hours it took to create those types of edits and the way you were zooming and, and things. I mean that now when the ScreenFlow, you just set a dial and push a button and it's done for you. Yeah. I have to say that I've still, do some of those old techniques because I, because I, as you say, originally we just had 
a couple of video capture applications, but they didn't have any editing capability. So you had to edit it in a separate package. And that's where I learned Final Cut Pro and started using keyframes for zooming and, and stuff like that. And I, I do do that now to a, to a limited extent, but um, there's no real need for me to do it in Final Cut Pro. It's just that I'm used to Final Cut Pro and that's like my fastest workflow. Um, but this year I'm, I'm sort of thinking of trying to do a bit more editing in ScreenFlow. Uh, and sort of try, try and get away from using Final Cut Pro so much because it's not really necessary. As you say, the, the, the applications now are so uh, competent on the editing side that I probably could get away. There's very little I do in Final Cut Pro that I can't actually replicate in ScreenFlow. It's just a laziness, really, to be honest. Yeah, you know, I did those uh, screen, I'm sorry, I did those screencasts on OmniFocus, which mm-hmm. it was either really good or a death march, depending on who you are. And the uh, I did all of that in ScreenFlow. I mean, the. Yeah. You know, putting in the the titles and everything—it was just amazing okay. to me how far it had come. Because no, it's, it's been got a transitions. While. It's the new version's got annotations and stuff as well. So, uh, one of the things you need to do sometimes is to is to blur out a part of the screen. You know, when you're actually uh, if there's sensitive information or a login that you don't want to show people, and that's so laborious in Final Cut Pro. You know, with making multi tracks and stuff, uh, you basically just draw on the screen and screen flow and slide a slider, and that blurs out that annotation. It's really really easy. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of have a look, spend some time this year um, moving all my stuff across into ScreenFlow and, and just using that rather than Final Cut Pro all the time. And so, all things compared, ScreenFlow is a fairly inexpensive package. I think it's 99 bucks in the Mac App Store. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And it's in the Mac App Store as well, which is great. So now I can sort of have it on multiple machines. Again, another limitation of Final Cut Pro, at least the, the Final Cut Pro 7, which is the one I use, is that you, you would have to buy an individual license for each machine. So I was always limited to just one Mac to edit with. That's interesting. So you have not gone to Final Cut Pro X. I've got it. I've actually done a tutorial on it. But again, I'm, I'm so... Um, the, the workflow that I have in Final Cut is is so sort of attuned to what I do that... Uh, and especially when it came out, sort of leading up to Christmas, I had the new website going on. I had uh, stuff to do uh, for Macworld. I had uh, shows to produce for while I was away. Uh, I really didn't have the capacity to um, sort of port everything across to Final Cut. 10. But thinking about it, I don't really need to for the screencasting. I, I, I will actually probably gravitate to ScreenFlow and, and then still use Final Cut Pro 10 when I, um, you know, doing sort of standard video projects. So, so Don, um, on, I'm sorry, I completely lost my uh, train of thought. <laughs> I'm thinking about ScreenFlow. <laughs> so, so uh, with respect to ScreenFlow, have you looked at any of the other screencasting apps that are out there? Uh, I did look at Camtasia when it first came out, um, but I haven't looked at it since, to be honest. And I think there's been a revision since then. Um, so no, so I haven't seen any, anything. Good. I mean, I used to use iShowU. I used to use the um, the other one, Snaps Pro X. Yeah. Um, but when ScreenFlow came out, that was it, sort of, you know, and, and it had a good 18 months, I think two years lead on Camtasia, uh, on the Mac platform anyway. But again, I hear great stories about Camtasia, that it's a very competent product. As I say there's been another release since, which I've not looked at. But um, again, it's this, it's this need, you know, do I really need to try another package when the one I've got is already doing the job admirably and or the workflow that I've got is already working for me? So, you know, time, time's so short and, and there's so much pressure to get things done on, on a weekly basis that sometimes I, I prefer to spend that time looking at the content I'm producing rather than sort of my own actual workflow if I don't really need to. I had exactly the same experience when Camtasia first came out. I, I looked at, I even reviewed it and found it wanting in several regards. And I'm told that they fixed a lot of that stuff, but mm-hmm. I'm so into ScreenFlow at this point that I'm not really interested in seeing what they have. 
Yeah, that's right. And it's a shame, really, because I'm, I'm sure it's a good package. I mean, they've got the uh, the experience on the Windows platform, but um, I will see. Um, perhaps uh, this year, when things calm down a little bit, I might uh, take a peek. But uh, at the moment, I'm planning to sort of migrate more across to ScreenFlow, to be honest. So you're working in uh, ScreenFlow, and then when you, at some point, you're doing some rough editing there. But at some point, you're exporting a file and sending it either to someone else or yourself yep. somewhere mm-hmm. else to do some edits on. Now, um, you know, what is the, uh, what are the export settings you use in ScreenFlow? You just do the lossless? Yeah. Um, with, with it being screen capture, um, the, and, and I'm going to take it onto further editing in another package. I, I need to keep the, the quality as high as possible. So I export in lossless format yeah. and, uh, copy that across, uh, directly from ScreenFlow in lossless format. And, um, and then I actually do a second level of conversion, to be honest. And again, I'm not sure if I need to do that anymore. I did some experimentation a couple of weeks ago, and I might need to do this next step. But I actually then convert the lossless into AIC format, which is the old Apple Intermediate Codec format. And then the only reason for doing that is that when I tried originally uh, to edit the lossless files, because uh, the lossless files use the animation codec. And many years ago, when I start, tried to edit using the raw animation codec, it, uh, it caused me a few problems in Final Cut. I used to get tearing and stuff, and the, you know, the quality wasn't as good as I, as I hoped it would be. So just as a, uh, an intermediate step, I re-encode to uh, AIC format, and then I use those AIC format files in Final Cut Pro 7 and, and do all the editing. And then once I've finished the editing in Final Cut Pro 7, I then re-export as animation codec, so it's lossless again. Do you do, um, so do you, where do you do that, that AIC encoding? I do that in compressor. Um, okay. one of the things I'd like ScreenFlow to do would be to batch export because you can't batch export. You have to do every sort of file individually. But once I have all the individual files out of ScreenFlow, I can then do a batch job in compressor, uh, throw all the files in compressor and it will throw out a bunch of AIC files. And that's, that's a fairly speedy job anyway. It doesn't take too long. Yeah. And do you want to explain what those what those different pieces do for people who don't have any familiarity with the with the Apple suite of products? Just briefly. Sorry, which pieces the uh, the the compre- why you why you do some yeah. in compressor why you do some in Final Cut and, and oh why you right break it up. well compressor uh, is is just the application that transcodes the video into a different format. So basically, you put a file in and it will it will spit it out in a different format for you, a format that is more compatible with Final Cut Pro. Uh, Final Cut Pro is the editing suite. So once I have that new formatted file, I can drop it into Final Cut Pro, and then it's just a linear video edi- editor from that point um, with lots of features built in that I can then go in and start doing things such as the uh, the transitions, doing some of the zooming, um, putting titles in, putting music in as well for the chapter breaks and stuff like that. So that's where I do the main edit. Uh, so on then- screen, I do the assembly edit. Final Cut right. Pro, I do the final edit. And then all of the animations that you've done, I would imagine by now you've you've got those pretty much packaged and all together. But they were initially created using a, a yet a different product, correct? Yeah. Well, the the opening sequence is done in motion, uh, right. which is Apple's three D package. Uh, it's very simple. It's just basically a star field with uh, some moving graphics. Um, I used to do like the the chapter inserts and stuff in motion as well, but I do all them in Final Cut Pro now. They're just uh, text overlays and and PNG files that I can move around on the screen. Um, so it's on, the only thing I do in motion now is the beginning graphic or the, the opening sequence and the final sequence, but that's all. Um, I just need to basically change the, the text on those each week. Not a lot of work involved in that. So you, you've got your, your final output out from, from Final Cut Pro, mm-hmm. and, and then you don't just do this once, right? You don't just compress it and upload it and you're done. 
Yeah, well, the the problem is there's so many people with different devices that, right. uh, and, and in some respects, I'm fortunate in that I'm sort of aiming at Apple people. So there is a limited number of resolutions that I need to do, and uh, you know, a limited number of uh, codecs. Uh, I know other video makers have to do all sorts of things with uh, you know Windows formats, etc. But yeah, I basically, uh, well, if I do the the, the Mac show, I produce uh, in the end five different versions uh, of the file. I do um, a HD version, which is 1280 by 720. I do a HD version at the same resolution, but I have to create a version for the Apple TV that gives a small black band that goes around the outside. And I call that the overscan version. And the reason for that is that if you have an Apple TV um, and you have a, a, a television that has overscan built in, and overscan is when in the olden days they didn't really worry about seeing the whole frame of the video um, you know, because it would just be a bit of the sky and a bit of the ground that would be lost. And so people really didn't worry about that. So there's this thing called overscan. Um, unfortunately, with the screencast, because the top, you know, 20 pixels are actually the menu bar, if they have overscan on the TV, the menu bar goes off the screen. And lots of the older high-definition televisions, you can't control that uh, overscan. So what I've had to do is produce a separate version that sort of brings everything slightly smaller just so it fits in to the... Uh, the area on a screen where overscan uh, might otherwise lose. So that's another version. And then I do a version for um, for some of the older devices, so for the older iPhones and iPods. And then for the free version, uh, if I'm doing a free version, I'll always do it either a trailer or a full show for the free version. And that's in HD again, 1280 by 720. And then in the uh, iPod version, the iPod resolution. Now do you, um, and you do all that through compressor, correct? Um, no, I actually, I've started to, well, I've been using it for a while now, but I tend to use Handbrake, to be honest, um, okay. to do that, to do, to create those resolutions. Uh, a couple of reasons. If you use compressor, um, Apple give you presets for all the different devices, but they're, they're really generous with the bandwidth and, um, for, for standard video, you know, you need high frame rates and you need, um, a large amount of bandwidth to get a really good image. But on the on screencast, because there's so little moving on screen, I can actually reduce the frame rate and also reduce the the amount of bandwidth in the video uh, down substantially. So I make much smaller files than the compressor would normally create for the particular Apple devices. So I, I tend to use, and also um, Apple uses H.264, whereas um, Handbrake uses a variant of that, but it's still compatible with the Apple devices. So in the, the end effect is that I can sort of do... Um, good quality files uh, very quickly. It's multi-threaded, so it will use all the cores on my Mac Pro, but also I can control the parameters uh, in a bit more granularity and actually create a lot smaller files. So I can sort of get, I might end up with, say, a 30-minute show, which when I output from Final Cut Pro at full resolution, full bandwidth, you know, lossless format, it probably comes in about 12 or 14 gigabytes. And then when I run that through compressor, um, the same resolution, but at a reduced bandwidth with this new encoding in, it brings it down to under 100 megabytes, which is you know perfect for distributing on the internet. So you can get some quite quite uh, great savings using Handbrake and some tweaks. And now, can you script that so it does all of the different shows at once, or do you just have to go through and individually uh, rip yeah, each one? Yeah, no, I've tried scripting, but there's one or two parameters that I can't seem to control reliably through the scripting. So unfortunately, I, I sort of just pull each file in and and just make my tweaks manually. It's it's again it's you know a ten minute job to do uh, to set up the queue for all the files. I can actually set a queue up and then once all the parameters are set, just hit a button and it will go ahead and and do the the entire batch of uh, of compression jobs. Yeah, and, and with eight cores, you're right. I bet that thing just flies. Yeah, it's pretty quick. It's pretty quick. Yeah, it's really nice. 
Now, I know at one point, and that's why you keep uh, upgrading and upgrading and upgrading, that this used to be one of the most time-consuming parts of your job. Because I know six years ago when you started, you, you certainly didn't have eight cores, and you probably sure. weren't doing as, as high an output. But you, you mentioned it briefly, and I wondered if you would just revisit it a little bit. You, you mentioned that you have almost an identical eight-core iMac as a backup, but your original plan was to use that so that you could also use some of the cores on that machine as, as well. And I know you said that ended up not working, but what was the, what was the theory behind that? Yeah, well, it was when um, when the I think not the last Mac Pro, but the Mac Pro before came out. Um, I got contacted by my local uh, Apple shop saying, "Oh, by the way, we've got some Mac Pros which were selling off at a really cheap rate." And uh, I just thought at the time it, it was worth uh, getting a spare machine. The, the idea was that it would be one a spare machine, so that if my main production machine goes down, I can just literally go across the other machine and carry on working. Um, but the other thought was. Uh, you you can using compressor uh, set up a distributed encoding network, and, and I've had it going a couple of times to be honest, but um, it's not that reliable. So I I sort of given up on that. Although I have to say with new com- with a new version of compressor, it seemed to be a lot more stable. So I might experiment with that a bit more. But um, I don't think you can actually create a distributing a distributed encoding environment with Handbrake. At least I don't believe you can. So, but again, it's, you know, it's, uh, I think one of the problems in the past was that I had to create sort of experiment a lot and, and try different settings and stuff. And that used to take the time. Whereas now all my settings are pretty much standard and um, the encoding really doesn't take that long now. It's um, probably the, the longest part of the encoding is getting out of Final Cut Pro, to be honest. All right. Let's take a quick break and talk about our second sponsor, the Omni Group. And in particular, I'd like to talk about one of my favorite apps that the Omni Group makes, OmniGraffle. Now, OmniGraffle is released both for the iPad and the Mac, and they have different versions of the Mac. They have a pro version and a standard version. What OmniGraffle really does is allow you to make quick and easy diagrams that look professional. Omni's done all the hard work of setting up the color schemes and creating the template images. where It's literally a drag-and-drop process. I love OmniGraffle. I use it all the time. Uh, in my day job, I can't tell you how often I pull that app out, uh, whether it's either on my iPad or my Mac, and make a quick diagram to show the relationship between parties to a lawsuit. But it's not just for that. We, we used OmniGraffle over the weekend and the family to figure out the relationship of the Potter family. Oh, dear. You know, we, were, we had a big dispute over Harry Potter. Well, there's so Lily we started- and James, and then there's Harry. But we started going, we, we went nuts with it. We were going uh, further up the chain because, you know, we weren't really sure. I mean, which one of them were muggles? Is Lily's parents, were one of them a muggle? We weren't yeah, really I think sure. one of the Lily's parents was a muggle. Yeah, so we got it out. My my uh, 10-year-old was explaining it to me, and I was building an OmniGraffle. And I realized <laughs> that is proof positive that I'm a complete nerd, but we had a good time with it. And afterwards, uh, we had a really cool picture. Um, so... Well, that's well worth the price of admission right there. Oh, absolutely. Totally. You know, but the uh, the point is you can do all this stuff really quickly. On the iPad version, you can even do it with your fingers, which is kind of neat. I think um, the iPad version of OmniGraffle is like the poster child for unique user interfaces on the iPad and and quick content creation in ways that you never would have thought possible. Uh, and they have all these different interesting gestures to create and manipulate the objects. You know, I I must admit I have never used OmniGraffle to create a Potter family tree, but I have used it many many times um, in my day job and and for personal projects, but never quite to that extent. So I I think you you win the geek award, David. 
Well, I, I even use it really as a, I guess, a poor man's replacement for Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop to the extent that I create images. Like we made a Christmas card a couple of years ago and I wanted to draw um, some stuff on it. We, I wanted to draw in a light string over a, a picture. And I just did it with that because it's got the Bezier curves. You can draw on, you can put a quick reflection on. It's very easy to do that kind of stuff with OmniGraffle. I, I just find uses for this app all the time. So you can get OmniGraffle for iOS and for the iPad for $49.99. Uh, the regular version for Mac is $99, and the Pro version is $200. Yeah, it's a great app. Go check it out. And thank you to the Omni Group for supporting the Mac Power users. Right. Now, I've noticed you do more than just encode and upload all these files. Your your files now have um, uh, subtitles. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, more pain. <laughs> yeah. But but that was an interesting um, an interesting move. So can you talk a little bit why you made the decision to move to subtitles and, and how that process works? Yeah, it's, it's something I'd always toyed with the idea of doing because um, mainly for accessibility, to be honest. Um, and a lot of the viewers aren't native English speaking, and I thought perhaps subtitles might help them. Um, also, you know, possibly break into a, a larger market with, you know, with having subtitles on as well. I did sort of toy with the idea of doing foreign language subtitles, but um, not for the weekly show. And I, I might look at that again in the future. I've done some of the applications. Well, the main application, the first application I did, I actually did in multilingual subtitles. But for the weekly show, there's just not enough hours in the day to create on a, a weekly schedule. So basically what I do now is just create um, an English subtitle track. And that's a fairly tortuous process in itself. I, I get the audio transcribed by a, a third-party company. Uh, they send it back and then I use uh, an application called Movie Captioner, I think it's called. And uh, basically my wife then goes through and, and sets up the subtitles. So you can synchronize the written transcript, the written transcript with the audio and then run it through another application. I use a package called iSubtitle, and that embeds it within the video. And then that's basically it. So um, transcribe, um, align the captions with the with the audio track, and then embed within iSubtitle, and then it's ready for distribution. That, you know, that's pretty. I watched your uh, your session at MacWorld on that. You did a, a a talk about that, and that's pretty fascinating. How well that works so you can key the words to certain portions of the video and it it really yeah. flies just like a professional uh oh yeah uh, i mean basically uh, all you do is is you you do some work on the text so you know you have to sort of double check it when it comes back from the transcription service um, they do a pretty good job to be honest i use a service called casting words uh the fairly well the Relatively expensive, but again, I need to have it back within 24 hours. So they have a, a premium rate service whereby I can send it to them and get the, the written transcript back in 24 hours. And then I have to go through and manipulate it. But once it's a movie captioner, uh, you basically listen to the audio track and it's, it's purely a matter of watching the lines on the screen and hitting return. You know, every time um, a line is spoken, you hit return, you just go through the whole video file doing that. And that automatically puts in the time code. And you can do things such as merge captions together or or split the captions if it doesn't quite look right. Or you can do a find and replace. Uh, it's quite quite a nice package. And at the end of it, it creates uh, what's called an SRT file, which is a, a, like an industry standard subtitling file that uh, you can then either embed in the movie file itself. So I use, again, I use iSubtitle for that. Or if you're doing a YouTube video um, and you, I mean, YouTube will do machine read captions, you know, they'll do automated captions for you. But you can upload this SRT file into YouTube and put subtitles on your YouTube video as well. So that's quite a neat trick to do. 
You know, there's a product Nuance makes. Uh, it's not Dragon Dictate. It should really be in Dragon Dictate, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm trying Are to remember. Are you talking about Scribe? Yes, yeah, oh, Scribe. Scribe, yeah. That's right. right. And so what you can do is you can take an audio file and you train it and and stick it in there and it will transcribe it for you. So you could do a recording and then transcribe it. The thing yeah. that makes me a little nutty is on the PC that comes with Dragon Dictate, but you have to buy a separate app on the Mac. Yeah, it's a bit of a I, I did consider getting that, to be honest. I think I did get a uh, an early beta copy, but I, I found that you had to do a fair amount of editing to get it right, you know, to learn the, the spoken word. It's it's much nicer to to get a, a proper transcript done, although it's you know it's, it's a bit expensive. But at least then I haven't got to worry about you know going through and spending a couple of hours actually correcting all all the mistakes or any any slight changes. It's, I wonder. Uh, I, w- I wonder if that's yeah. a thing with the accent. I mean, does does the speech recognition software over in the UK is it as reliable as it is in the United States? I don't really know. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. Um, but punctuation stuff, I'm not sure how Scribe handles that, you know, with not because I'm not speaking comma, period. That's yeah, that true. would be pretty bad oh, you know if what? he was that... speaking comma, period, in the screencast. No, yeah. no, you're right. That that will throw it off. I hadn't mm-hmm. thought of that. Okay, so that doesn't make any sense then. Forget I ever said it. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got large, large, vol- massive files. I mean, you're doing five, sh- five different versions of shows um, mm-hmm. every week. So on, on average, four or five times a month. Yeah. That where where are all these? How do you deal with the the uploading and the bandwidth and and all of those needs to actually get these files distributed to your customers? Right. Well, well uploading's not a problem anymore. Um, I've recently been upgraded to a hundred megabit or hundred megabyte rather. Um, I've got a cable connection to my oh. ISP, so I've got a nice uh, ten megabits or ten megabytes. I can never remember which one. I've got uh, ten megabytes going upstream. So uh, it used to be a real bottleneck, you know, actually uploading the the final produced files to my uh, service provider, but that's fine now. So uploading's not a problem. Just hit the button and it's, it's done within 20, 25 minutes. It's great. As far as storage is concerned, this this would be the killer um, because one is the storage, but also there's the bandwidth of distribution. Because with video files, you know, if you're talking 100, um, I mean, they're down to 100 meg now, but it used to be like 150, 160 megabytes. And if you've got five or six of those, you're looking at you know seven or 800 megabytes per show. And that's going to thousands of people. So you could, if you're not careful, you know, sort of get killed on the on the bandwidth charges, the distribution bandwidth charges. But uh, I'll, I'll raise the flag up for Libsyn. Uh, Libsyn's a service I've been using since pretty much since day one, to be honest. And they're a dedicated podcasting service. And they're unique in that they don't charge you for the bandwidth. They charge you for the amount of storage that you use. Um, I know you guys are familiar with Libsyn, but they charge you for the amount of storage that you use on a month-to-month basis. But then, you know, you can you can you can have ten listeners or ten viewers, or you can have ten thousand listeners or viewers, and you don't pay any extra. You just pay that fixed rate for the amount of storage that you have on the server for that particular month. And then it's a rolling month as well. So next month, it sort of clears everything down to zero. You can still access the files, but um, you can start uploading fresh content and. Uh, it just rolls on through the months. So Libsyn's been my saviour, to be honest. They've been fantastic. And um, yeah, couldn't, couldn't really have done it without Libsyn, to be honest. So let's, let's talk a little bit um, about the iOS side. We've been, we've been talking about the Mac side quite a bit. How mm-hmm. do you get the, the input and the screen capture? Because I know that was a very difficult problem for a while 
from your iOS device, you know, absent hooking up a video camera or, yeah, you know, for a long time, it was only Apple that had this magical video output device <laughs> that would scrape, string it to a screen. Yeah. Well, it's been and I think even today, it's really not that easy still. I mean, you can get an, an iPad or an iPhone easily out to an Apple TV mm-hmm. or to, I guess, an HDMI, but getting that HDMI into a Mac is another story. Yeah, you you have to use a dedicated device of some description to do the video capture. Um, I mean, when the iPad and the iPhone first came out without AirPlay, so there was no, there was no out. Um, that that was horrendous. Uh, I really hate using a video camera. I don't know how Apple actually gets such fantastic video. I mean, obviously they pay MegaBooks and have studios, etc. But in a domestic environment or a, a small studio environment, it's very very hard to capture. Um, the iPad screen on a video camera. So it has to be native capture as far as I'm concerned. Um, and the the original solution was jailbreak. That was the only way you could do it. You'd have to have a, a jailbroken device. And there were a couple of applications that allowed you to either record video directly on the device and then transfer it off the device or hook it up to a, a Mac and actually do a screen capture off the Mac. So that was in the sort of the early days. But of course, with with having to... Uh, have the the device jailbroken? You were always a couple of releases behind the the current release of iOS, so that that was never really a, you know an optimum solution. So and, you know, the- and just on that yeah. note, I get emails all the time from people saying, "Well, I think I'm going to jailbreak. Do you think I should or not?" And I generally say no, unless there's mm-hmm. an app that you really really need yeah. because it it does the the uh, the device becomes more crashy. Yeah, and Definitely. just you deal with a lot of headaches that is exactly the opposite reason of why you buy Apple products. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I would never recommend jailbreaking. The only reason I jailbroke was was literally to get this screen capture working, and that was um, that was the only reason I, I did the jailbreak. And it, it's just a whole... I don't think it's as bad now, but in the early days, it was a, it was a, a you know, real bag of hurt. So, <laughs> but... Um, now I now that the the new devices have got the uh, the video out, I, I use um, a dedicated capture device now. It's a thing called a frame grabber, which is a, a little unit that you plug the VGA adapter into, and then has a USB connection coming out of it, and that goes into the Mac. And then um, it's, it's still fiddly, though, to be honest. It's it's still fiddly. And then the problem is, even if you manage to capture the display, um, you can't capture the finger taps. So you have to do something to indicate on screen you know, to give people a visual clue as to where it is you're going to tap or where it is you're actually tapping. Um, you, you can't see, if you, if you just capture the screen and, and just talk through, it's very hard. It's, it's great with the, with the Mac because you've got the mouse cursor and I normally put like a, a red ring around the mouse cursor so your eye is drawn to the cursor so you can see where it is on screen, you can see what I'm going to click, etc. On the iPad or the iPhone, you, you don't get that visual feedback. So you have to do something to uh, to enable that. And Again, I've used various combinations, uh, hand animation. I've uh, done a couple. In fact, the, uh, the, iPad, uh, the iPad tutorial I did for the Mac App Store, or for the iTunes App Store, rather, which is uh, SEO Tutor for iPad. It's about two hours, 20 minutes, telling you all about the iPad, you know, how you can use it, etc. And for every single tap in that, uh, that two hours, 20 minutes, I had to animate a little motion graphic of a finger tap, you know, a little Oh, my goodness. Of, uh, I have so much more appreciation for it now. <laughs> <laughs> that that was horrendous. That was horrible. Um, but now to, I've got around that by having a combination. Of, yeah, I had to go back to jailbreaking again. So I have a, a jailbroken iPad. Um, there's a, an application called Display Recorder, I think, which is a, a jailbroken application. And that enables you to have system-wide taps on the screen so you can actually see where you're tapping. And then I use the frame grabber to grab the video out and then 
it's 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 still it's still quite uh, quite a performance to actually do an, an iOS screencast, to be honest. Yeah, and you know the the quality of the intermediate device really can affect the the output, the final output. When I did those, yeah, that's right. I mean, you have to have something that captures the native resolution, which is ten twenty four by seven sixty eight. You you can get uh, HD devices that will squish it down or they'll you know it, and it looks nasty um the the solution i've got now does do a native screen resolution so it's 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 a pixel perfect rendering of, of the ipad or the iphone screen and it looks really nice so I'm, yeah. I'm quite happy with what i've got now but it's not uh, certainly not easy and then the other problem is that you've got these analog situations where you're converting the signal and it really comes out terrible. Um, I had a little experience with this when I did those screencasts for Omni Group. I did those little commercials on when Omni Focus got Siri support. Mm-hmm. And there really wasn't a solution. In fact, at the time you and I had had breakfast, we were up at uh, in LA together and you were yeah. telling me what you're using. Mm-hmm. What, what I ended up doing was uh, the Omni Group bought the black magic thunderbolt device which is like a thousand dollars it's really expensive uh-huh. and um but it's got an hdmi in and it's got a thunderbolt out and with you know after about an hour of fiddling i was able to get that to appear natively on my screen pixel for pixel yeah and uh the way i i recorded it because the the actual the black magic recording software was about 10 levels above my pay grade and I wasn't able to get it to really record right. And I, I suspect if I'd spent some time with people, I would have got it figured out, but I didn't have time. So I just booted up ScreenFlow, and because I had pixel for pixel on my screen, yep. I recorded the screen while I did whatever I was doing on the iPhone. And then in ScreenFlow, you can adjust the, the canvas size. Sure. So then I just cut the canvas down to exactly the size of the iPhone screen. And then I'd export that as lossless. And then I had a great looking video of the phone that was, like you said, you know, looked ideal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah that's, but, that's the only way to do it really. Is it, again, I do exactly the same. I, once I have it on screen, I'll use ScreenFlow to capture the screen and then re, uh, crop the canvas size down to, uh, to what I want it to be. Ah, I wish I had known that. I, I thought I was brilliant. And of course, Don had already figured it out. <laughs> Don's always got it all figured out. Uh, they do have, if you're listening to the show and you're interested in this, um, because I am definitely interested in doing some more screen casting of iOS stuff. We're planning on adding it to our show. I'm going to add it to some future other projects. Um, Blackmagic has a device called the Intensity Extreme. It's $300. And they promised it would be out by the end of... 2011 and now i'm hearing by the end of february so as we record the show hopefully it's out very shortly um i have one on order at b and h um but it's 300 bucks it's got hdmi in and it's got thunderbolt out and i think that's gonna be the trick i'll put it in the show notes wow that could be the problem solver there yeah Mm. hopefully i don't know Sounds like yeah, this just, frame grabber thing does the same thing for Don, though. Does, but that, that was quite expensive. I think that's about seven or eight hundred dollars just for this frame grabber. It's a very basic piece of kit, but um, yeah. And, and I wish Apple would just, you know, enable. Uh, they only only need to do a system setting somewhere that just enables you to switch on taps, not just for screen record uh, screen recording. You know, if people are giving presentations, they they've got the display out that they can put to a, a big HD TV or to a projector. And you know, when they're demonstrating live demos, it would be perfect to have a, a touch switch that you switch on so you can actually see the taps on screen so why they don't do that i i don't know it would be such a boon for uh for teaching and for for all sorts of things not just screencasting 
So however you do it, at some point you get these videos on your Mac and then they go through the same workflow, except uh, I suspect you're not using um, ScreenFlow really much except to get capture that raw video and you're probably doing yeah. everything in Final Cut at that point. Um, well, I'm still, I'm still it's pretty, it, the, the actual process from that, once the, the thing is captured, it's it's pretty much the identical process. Then I'll, I'll do um, some basic editing in ScreenFlow and then get it into Final Cut Pro and do the final edit and then the encoding, etc distribution subtitles don one of the major areas where you've made changes recently is, is your website so can you talk a little bit about the role that your your website plays and how you're managing that because i know i know before you were using a product called rapid weaver i'm not sure if you still are yeah no I use, i've used rapid weaver from the beginning and rapid weaver is a template based web creation tool and it's it stood me in good stead for the you know the past four or five years but uh i sort of reached the point whereby I, I needed a bit more flexibility. Uh, I wasn't using a content management system. I was basically just hosting all my videos on Libsyn and then using sort of manual links and stuff to, to distribute them. And um, I, I got in touch with a guy in the UK, a guy called Jamie Peak, uh, about six months ago. And um, we sort of discussed creating a brand new website from scratch. And uh, over the, uh, the autumn months, Jamie actually sat down and, and basically rebuilt the, the entire Screencast Online website from scratch using a MySQL backend and all custom PHP and HTML5 and all sorts of stuff and JavaScript. So basically, Jamie's done a fantastic job and created this brand new uh, website for me. Uh, it's also integrated into the membership system now as well. So before, it used to, it used to be like a public website and a member's website, and you had to log into one to see the videos if you remember, and uh, it, was a, it was a mess. Whereas this one now, it's fully integrated into the membership system, so people can log in to this, the one site um, you can access the site at screencastonline.com. If you're not a member, you'll still see all the trailers, you'll still see all the write-ups, you'll still be able to navigate the site, and you'll see sort of um, uh, commercials, I suppose you could call them, or adverts about becoming a member. Um, but if you're a member, you go to the same site, you log in, and the commercials disappear, you get access to all the uh, the videos, the full versions of the videos that you can download directly from the individual video pages, there's uh, discussion forums, there's reviews forums, things like that. So it's it's quite a big change, quite a major change, and that only went live about four weeks ago. Uh, and also in there, it, there's some automation built in now, so I can, uh, once I produce the show, I can create all the, the, the web pages in advance and then sort of set them up to, to publish automatically on a certain date. So that's great for when I'm going away. I can do two or three shows in advance, set them up on the website, and literally... As soon as it rolls over onto that day, bang! The RSS feeds get generated. The uh, the page appears on the web. It's uh, it's all very very seamless and a, a tremendous boon, to be honest. And it looks really nice. I mean, I think and you it looks really, great. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you didn't you didn't start over. I mean, you do have a lot of the you know I think the feel of the old site, but I think it's it's definitely better. Yeah, well, it's sort of. Um, I had Rapid Weaver, and then Jamie did a landing page, a separate landing page, which was the main page that people saw. So people have been quite used to the new look for a while now because we just had that one landing page, and then we had the the Rapid Weaver website behind it. But now, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the the entire site is done in the style of the initial landing page. So it's uh, yeah, I, I think he's done a really fantastic job. Very smart. And our last sponsor for today is 1Password. Now, you know, David, we always talk about the virtues of 1Password because you can use it to create, you know, strong, unique passwords for every website that you visit because these days you simply cannot repeat the same password over and over again. We love 1Password because it allows you to have these passwords on every single device you own, whether it's iOS, Mac, PC, iPhone, iPad, Android, Whatever you want to do, it all just syncs by Dropbox. 
We love it because it will go and fill. And, you know, we love it now because we're starting to get listener testimonies from people who have heard about 1Password on our show, have used it, and that it has saved their bacon in more ways than one. Yeah. In fact, we heard just this week from a listener talking about 1Password. Yeah. So here's here's a, a listener, Ralph, wrote in and said, Halfway through our two-day drive home from California, my wife and I discovered that we left our passports in the condo where we were staying, now 800 miles in the wrong direction. Fortunately, I had copies of our passports stored within 1Password and was able to print out a copy at the hotel we overnighted in. The next day, we crossed the border without incident, and the forgotten passwords were mailed home the next week. Thank you, 1Password. It was apparently an eventful trip because Ralph wrote back and said, also in that trip, while in Toronto, his MacBook Pro started to struggle, and the Apple store there fixed it for him, but it required a nuke and pave, and he got a new hard drive. So he did a clean install from his um backup, which would be his normal route. But the problem is, is that his backup was 3000 miles away at this point. He signed into his iTunes account because 1Password is not now available in the Mac App Store and was able to download all of the software that he had purchased from the Mac App Store, including 1Password, installed his Dropbox, all of his passwords synced back. And he said that he was about 95% restored on the road by the time he got back home. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the first things when you're setting up a new Mac because you've got the 1Password database on your Dropbox. So you just install 1Password and it hooks in. And that gives you kind of the way to get into all your other apps and your information because all your your software license keys and all the stuff you need to really set up a computer is usually in that encrypted database. Right. Did you see we got a, a Twitter from a listener, Dejeanie, uh, D-G-U-I-N-E-E, I hope I pronounced that right. But he, he pointed out that, the, you know, when Anonymous hacked the Syrian president's email, mm-hmm. password was 12345. Oh. The Syrian president's email is 12345. Now, if he was a Mac Power user, he would have had a better email. He would have had one password, although I can't say I really feel bad about that. No, well, me either, but I thought that was funny. And we better be careful. We'll get censored in Syria. I bet we already are, though. I don't know. Anyway. I don't really care. There's a lot of stuff I don't care about, I guess. Um, Ralph, anyway, so you know, we're, we're sorry your trip was so event, un, you know, eventful, but um, we're, we're glad that you had one password along. And, you know, David, that's a really good tip. You know, I've, I've got a scanned copy of my passport, and I had heard that before, that if you're traveling, if you, if you have a good clean scanned copy, that if you need to get a replacement, that can make getting a replacement a lot easier. I'm now going to put that in one password, so I'm going to have it everywhere all the time, no matter what. Smart. Yeah. You do a lot of international traveling? You know, I think I would like to one day. So you can find more information about 1Password at www.onepassword.com. It's available in the Mac App Store for $49.99. If you are a slider and you need a Mac and a Windows copy, there is a Mac and Windows bundle available on their website for $69.99. There's an iOS Pro version, which is a hybrid that will work with both an iPad and an iPhone for $14.99. Or if you just need one or the other, you can get either license alone for nine ninety nine. So again, one password is everywhere. Thanks, one uh, password for supporting the podcast. Don, we've talked a lot about how you produce the video, how you upload the video, how you, how you manage this, but the the core of this is this is now your business, and mm-hmm. and you've you've been very 
um, lucky, I think, and in, in that you've been able to, I, I should rephrase that, luck has nothing to do with it. You're incredibly talented. Um, but you've, you've been able to turn this into a full-fledged business, which means you've also got some business back-end stuff that you, you have to deal with as well. Sure. Um, you've got data storage needs. You've got office needs. You've got, um, to re- you've got support requests, I'm, I'm sure, that you, mm-hmm. you have to deal with. Can you talk a little bit about how the, how the back-end of Screencasts Online that we don't see works? Yeah, well, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a membership package called A Member, which I've been using for quite a while now. It's something that was recommended to me when I did one of the initial uh, Blog World Expos many moons ago. Um, basically, that's um, a database system that allows people to... Uh, well, it's linked into the finance systems that I use as well. So, so let's sort of start from... If someone wants to become a member, basically, they go to the website and they're presented with a, a, a login page. They can enter their details. Uh, that's a member. So the details are entered into the a member database. And then they get sent across to a payment processor, which is a, a company called FastSpring. So they deal with all the financial transactions. So I don't see any of the credit card information or anything like that. Basically, um, they will do the, the financial transaction, whether it be on PayPal or whether it be through your credit card. And then once that's gone through, um, they get passed back to the website, and they get a couple of emails sort of thanking them, a receipt for the transaction, and then a username and password. And it's the username and password. Um, in fact, I've changed it now so people can create their own username and passwords. But once the transaction's gone through, they can use that username and password then to log into the site. And a member then keeps track of, you know, if they've signed up for uh, a monthly um, membership or a quarterly or annually, a member just keeps track of where they're up to in that membership. And then when the time comes to renew, it will send a reminder out to say, look, it's time to renew. If you want to renew, great. If not, no problem. And um, if they do renew, they go back across to FastSpring and it, it, the cycle repeats. But it's all controlled by this A member. Um, that, that sort of manages access to the website through the username and password and also manages access to the RSS feeds as well. So as soon as someone doesn't or as soon as a membership expires, they sort of don't get access to the web, full website and the RSS feeds. Uh, so it's all pretty... Um, the, the support side of it isn't too onerous. I mean, it, it's still done by myself and my wife. There's only the two of us that actually work full-time on, on Screencast Online. And most of the support calls are to do with membership queries and payment queries and stuff like that. And um, at the moment, we can manage it between us, so it's not too bad. Uh, Barbara tends to do most of the membership stuff, and I do any sort of technical issues that people have with accessing the videos or accessing the website. Do you... Um use any kind of dedicated help desk software or any kind of scripting? Because I would imagine you get the same type of questions over and over and over yeah, and over we again. we use Text Expander. We use Text Expander an awful lot to right. um, do, you know, standard email responses and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, Text Expander. Um, been using, um, what's the, a mail act-on? Uh, lots of keystrokes for mail act-on to, you know, once we've replied to something to file it in different folders. So, basically, we use Apple Mail as the main sort of tracking system. Uh, it's all done via email. I have thought in the past about using some uh, dedicated help desk software to sort of manage it more closely, but we can just about manage on mail with it just being the two of us. It's not it's not too bad a deal. So, Don, what other apps do you use to to run this process? I mean, it seems to me like you've kind of got it got it down to a system at this point. Yeah, I mean, well, most of most of the uh, the membership side is all web based, of course. All, all you know, that's that's all web based. So, um, a member. I use mailing lists as well. So, I use a, a service called Aweber, which is a mailing list service for. I do a weekly newsletter as well. So, if, and you don't have to be a member to get the newsletter, but it's a nice prompt for people so they 
keep an eye on what's uh, what's been published that week. So there's a, a newsletter that goes out via Aweber. Um, I use Mailchimp sometimes for um, uh, certain mail shots. Uh, what else do I use? All the, stand- the, the standard Mac stuff. I, I use numbers as my sort of spreadsheet, unless I'm doing some really heavy number crunching, in which case I'll, I'll fire up Excel to do that. Um, and that's probably about it, to be honest, as, as far as uh, dedicated tools are concerned. Of course, uh, now that I'm into the apps, that's a whole different, you know, that's, that's Xcode and all sorts of things. Now, um, as, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, I, I produced... Uh, three titles now, um, both in the Mac App Store and also in the iTunes Store, um, branded SEO Tutor, so Screencast Online Tutor. And these are apps, these, are, these first apps are meant at uh, new beginners. So there's one for the Mac, one for the iPad, and there's one for uh, new Lion users as well. And um, basically, it's some of the content I've already created, but uh, a guy uh, called Simon, Simon Wolf, he has created a framework application which has got some neat features in, such as uh, 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 chapter lists and subtitle controls and multilingual capabilities. And I can basically create um, an application that contains some of my videos and then sell that separately on the the App Store. And then, you know, to to manage all that, I use GitHub for the repository for the code, and then I use uh, Xcode to actually generate the... uh, I don't actually do any of the coding, I have to say. Simon does all that. But I, I... and, but for our program. listeners, this is an opportunity. So what I was talking about at the beginning of the show was somebody gets a new iPad or a new Mac in your life, mm-hmm. you can gift them this app, and they can download it directly. They don't have to be a Screencast Online subscriber. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They That's can just right. download this app, and mm-hmm. they can watch Don. Like I said, Don does such a good job of getting people into this stuff that it really saves you a ton of time. It's it's so worth it. It I saves think, you as the gifter a ton of time. Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> I think yeah, I've no, given it away like four or five times. So, you know, yeah, anybody in my think? life that gets a new iPad or a new Mac, I the first thing I do is I send them an SEO tutor gift. And <laughs> and then, uh, then we're at least on some common ground. So when they call yeah. me, you know, they know how to open a window or they know, you know, the, just the stuff that we take for granted is, is already there. Yeah. That that was the idea behind the well, both the iPad one and the Mac one. It was really meant aimed at people who had never ever seen a Mac before. Perhaps they're coming across from the Windows environment, and it's the first time they've used an iPad, or it's the first time they've seen a Mac. Because we do take an awful lot for granted. And um, but but again, you know, as Katie said before, I, I get people who are existing Mac users have written to me and said, "Look, uh, I actually downloaded this and had a look at it before I gave it to, to such and such," and and they picked up a couple of things in there as well that they hadn't quite realised, or it reminded them of something that they they did know but had forgotten about so you know it's quite a useful thing and as you say it's completely independent of the membership thing people can just buy that obviously I'd, I'd like people once they see it to become members that's one of the reasons for, for putting it out there but uh, the main intention was to to get it out there for, for, for brand new users and uh, hopefully I will sort of expand that uh, into a, a more fully featured ideally I'd like to do sort of in-app purchases and uh, give access to members content through the applications but for now they're just individual standalone tutorials which uh, people can just go across and uh, have a look at and you have them for sale both in the Mac App Store and the iOS App Store so indeed yes if you if you have an iPad you can get the iPad app on your iPad and watch it yep. there or mm-hmm. you could watch it on your iPad w- uh, as a separate screen while you're working on your Mac, which is great. Yeah. In fact, that's one way. If you uh, if you're a Screencast Online subscriber, I, I strongly recommend that is you put these screencasts that Don makes on your iPad and just set it next to your computer, and then you can watch Don do it while you get your screen there. You can learn it. It's just a great way to learn. 
Yeah, I mean, the iPad is brilliant for that because it's just a small portable monitor next to you that you can run the tutorial on. Um, all the all the Screencast Online tutorials are compatible with the iPad, so you know they'll run there quite happily. Also, because it's delivered as a podcast, um, you can get something like iCatcher or Instacast, and you can subscribe to the members' feeds using those uh, dedicated podcatchers so that um, you know you, you can actually, you don't have to synch- synchronize your, your iPad with your, your Mac or your PC. You can just subscribe on the iPad itself. And then as the new show is published each week, it'll just come straight down to your iPad. You can watch it on there. Yeah, I didn't know you could do that. So with, oh, yeah, a, yeah. with a paid subscription, that'll still work. Mm-hmm. It yep. does. Um, they have support for protected feeds. So basically what you do is, and there's a page on the website that tells you what to do, but you, you copy the URL and then the first time it tries to get to the URL, it will prompt you for your username and password. Enter that in and um, that's fine. Don, one of the things that, that always uh, intrigues me is is how you deal with data storage. Because I know just when, when we do our own podcast, we're creating several gigabytes worth of files mm-hmm. on a on a on a weekly basis. Now, some of those end up going away, but I, I typically hang on to them for a week or two until, you know, just make sure people don't email me and say, hey, you, you've, you've, you've worked up this file, there's a problem, and so I can go back and easily fix it. When, when you're doing video, especially doing video times five different video formats on a, on a weekly basis, and, and I guess times Mac and iOS devices now, <laughs> you've got to be creating terabytes of data a month. How, yeah, how do you deal bit. with this? How do you get it backed up, and and what is kind of the data retention? I mean, do you hang on to it all forever? Yeah, it's it's. Um, yeah, I've got I've got drives coming out of my ears. It's and, and unfortunately, I've had a few issues with some external drives today, and that's uh, one of the reasons I've done some rebuilding today. But basically, I have um, a Drobo Pro, um, an eight drive Drobo Pro, which is sort of like the big archive. Um, it's not a backup; it's it's just a pool of storage that I have there that has all the content on. And I think that's up to about six or seven terabytes of of storage there. But in the middle, I have a, a number of uh, Sonnet uh, disk arrays. And so they're, they're sort of like the intermediate storage. Um, so the workflow basically is I'll, I'll create something on the, the Mac Pro. Um, that will then get passed across to the Sonnets, which are mirrored drives and various configurations in there. So that's sort of like one backup. And then it gets passed across to the... Uh, the Drobo Pro as well as a second backup because, you know, as everyone should know, you shouldn't just have one backup of something. So I've got two backups. I've dabbled a little bit with um, offline backups as well, but um, there's such a, you know, it's it's, it's even with a, this high bandwidth uh, upload speed I have, it's uh, difficult to upload that much stuff. I, I do look at uh, offsite backups as well. So what happens is when the Sonnet drives fill up, uh, I'll basically take them out and replace them and then they become my offsite backups then as well. So I've got uh, intermediate backups on the Sonics, and I've then got the the long term storage on the Drobo Pro. Well, have you ever lost any data? Um, not really. I, I did lose. Oh, I lost an iTunes library once, but that that was before yeah. I had. Um, yeah, that was that was unfortunate. So thank goodness for iTunes Match, but um, not really. I, what I tried to do in the early days is because the intermediate files I talked about before, they're huge. So what I, what I started to do was um, not copy across the intermediate files because they can be recreated. But then when the time comes to actually use the files that you've, you know, the, the edit files that you want, you have to recreate those files. So that's a bit of a pain. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sort of save more now and not worry too much about sort of recreating them. The fact is I don't really need to go back to them that often. It's more for, uh, I just don't like sort of deleting everything. Um, saying that though, with the, with the, I have actually gone back and looked at uh, reusing some of the shows for the applications, 
And there's a couple more applications I might sort of revisit with stuff I've already created. So I, I will need to go back to those previous shows and hopefully dig out the, uh, the original files and, and just re-edit them and bring them up to date. Well, I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I would have lost data if I were you by now. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure I have lost it. It's just I probably don't know that I've lost it. You know, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Don, is there, is there anything else we, we haven't covered with regards to your production of screencasts online? And if not, I've got a couple, couple more questions for you, but I just want to, have we, have we covered it all with regards to your production workflow? No, I think we've pretty much covered most of the stages. I mean, we've, we've glossed over them that, that they can be a lot more, um, the, the, although it sounds complex, it's actually more complex to do it. I've got a big spreadsheet now, which uh, shows all the different steps, like a, because I'm doing the multiple shows sort of in parallel. Um, it was all too much to keep in my head now. So I have a, a spreadsheet, which is uh, every stage of the process with uh, color-coordinated buttons that when I click something's done, it changes to green. So I can see at a glance where I'm to with all the different shows that I'm actually working on. Right. One of the questions that I've been asking our, our workflow users, and I, you probably have, have previewed and reviewed and demoed more products than anybody we've had on our show to date, is what are the little gems on your Mac that you could not live without? So these don't necessarily have to be products that you use within your work your your workflow to produce your screencasts online work, but just things that you use every day um, in in that make your your Mac life easier. Do, do you have any favorites that we haven't talked about already? Um, ooh, I'm, application launches. I, I was a, a I'm, well, still I'm a big fan of LaunchBar. Uh, I've started to use Alfred now. Um, in, in preference to LaunchBar, to be honest. So, you know, I, I find it very difficult to not use an application launcher. So uh, either LaunchBar or Alfred. Um, I, I would, you know, I use all the, all the time. I'm going to have to pick your brain on that. I'm playing with Alfred, but there's some parts of it I don't get yet. So okay. we'll talk there's, about there's this offline. There's a couple of Screencast Online episodes on that, David, <laughs> that you can, you can take a look at. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 not as fully comprehensive as LaunchBar, but again, what I found was I wasn't using all of the power features of LaunchBar. So, um, and you, you know, if if you're not using all the power features of LaunchBar, it's 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 perfectly adequate. And I, I think it just looks a bit nicer. And uh, there are some features that I'd like to, to work a bit more like LaunchBar, but for now, I'm sort of sticking with Alfred. See how it goes. Okay. I think that's the difference. I I go nuts with LaunchBar. I use every bell and whistle in that thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What yeah, else that, do might, that might be where it might be different. Uh, other things, um, TechSoap I've started to use more, which is um, uh, an application for um, cleaning text, basically. So if I'm doing lots of copy and pasting from, from Excel, I, I, one thing we didn't talk about is uh, I have a big Excel spreadsheet. Um, actually, sorry, no, it's a number spreadsheet that I use for uh, generating some of the web content and for storing the links where they all are on Libsyn. And um, I, I basically copy and paste that out of at numbers, drop it into TechSoap, run TechSoap, and that will clean up, take out all the double quotes and straighten quotes out for me, stuff like that. There's some custom um, scripts in there that do that. Uh, I also use that for the uh, cleaning the transcripts when they come back as well. So I do some editing in uh, TechSoap and some uh, text truncating, changing the line lengths and putting special characters in, et cetera. So that's, that's a really good application. And I don't I've, think I've written, look, I interrupt there too, real quick. I, I've written about TechSoap and Mac Sparky. I put it in the Mac at work book too. Oh. That app, I, I don't think we could do a whole show on it, but I love that app. It's a, just a little utility. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you get like email from someone and it's got a bunch of extra characters in it yeah. or uh, their email program 
hard-coded in carriage returns at every new line, and just all the goofy things that you deal with when you work with text. Uh, this TechSoap app will fix it. And, and no matter yeah. what the problem is, you just mm-hmm. drop it in there. Uh, they've got a they've got one button called Scrub. You just hit that, and it fixes it generally. But if not, that you can make very custom um, filters to go through and do certain things. And uh, if anybody listening to this uses text and routinely finds themselves having to go through each line and remove something, this is something you may want to check out. Yeah, it's a great app. It's, it's quite complex and it's a bit. In fact, it's probably an ideal candidate for a screencast, to be honest. So I'll put that down on my list for some time this this year. Yeah, yeah. I I think I met them at MacWorld a couple of years ago. I had lunch with with one of the guys who started TechSoap. I don't know if he's he's still involved. Back when it was a, a one man shop and still very small, and it was a very interesting idea. And I think now they're on version seven or so. I still think it is a one man shop. I don't is think it's it, it, not. You know, it's, yeah, it's Mark Munns. Uh, we actually met him at MacWorld. He was the smile party at MacWorld. So. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> so. And uh, I'm sure there's lots of other things. I use numbers a lot as a spreadsheet. Um, can't think of any other sort of little utilities that I use at the minute. Well, that's okay, Don. I mean, I think, you know, like a lot of our workflow guests, you've got certain tools that you use and you get a lot done with it. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, the, the whole the whole point of this. Yeah. Oh, the only other thing I would mention is um, uh, Brett's Markdown services and stuff like that. I'm finding more and more use for them because I, I do love Markdown. I think Markdown's a great concept, and uh, Brett does some some great work with Markdown. So um, his, his services for creating bulleted lists and things are invaluable. I use them a lot now. Yeah, Brett Terpstra has changed the way a lot of us write. <laughs> <laughs> well, Don, tell tell everybody where they can find um, your screencast, your apps, and and all things screencast online, and and more information if they want to subscribe or if they oh, want to you. gift your apps or see more. Right, a big intake of breath. Then, okay. Um, okay, right. Well, go to screencastonline.com. That's the the main sort of landing page for the screencast. There are three different subscription models. Uh, you can subscribe just to the Mac shows. There's a, a Mac show every week and an iOS show every week. So you can subscribe just to the Mac channel if you want. Uh, you can subscribe to just the iOS shows, or there's a combination of both. So you'll get two tutorials each week. And all the details are over at screencastonline.com. There's plenty of buttons for more information over there to, uh, to check that out. Uh, the memberships are monthly, quarterly, and annually. Uh, or you can just pay for a single year if you don't want like a recurring subscription. So, um, But as I say, all the information is over there on screencastonline.com. There's some trailers. Uh, these This week's show, well, we're actually recording this on, uh, is it the 11th or the 12th? I've just recorded <laughs> two free shows, which is, oh, let me think. Mine's gone blank. Oh, Pacebot on uh, on iOS and also Moom, which is a great window manager on the Mac. So people can download those full shows and have a look at them. Uh, So that's the screencast online. The apps are in the iTunes store and they are in the Mac app store. Just search for SCO Tutor and you'll actually get those if you do a search for them. And I think they're about £2.49, so about $3.99, I think, to to get those apps. And then you can always find me on Twitter. And the MaxScreencastGuy.com is my blog. And I'm going to put all of that in the show notes, so go check it out. You can uh, get the apps, or you can subscribe to the service, or check out some of the great stuff we talked about during the show. Don, Mm -hmm. I am so pleased we finally had you on the show. Thank you for coming in and talking to us. The pleasure's all mine. I really enjoyed that. It was great. And uh, thanks for all the great work you do over at Screencast Online. Uh, Not only do you help me educate new Mac users, you educate me as well frequently. (laughs) Me too. Thank you, Don. Uh, It's always good to hang out with you guys.
All right. So we want to thank Don McAllister for taking the time to chat with us about his Screencast Online workflows. And if you haven't already, uh, really every Mac user needs to check out Screencast Online. It not only makes a great gift for the new Mac or new iOS users in your life, but like I said, David, I watch it every week. And just about every week, I learn something new from from Don and Screencast Online. It's kind of my my Sunday morning ritual. I, I get my coffee and I plop in front of the Apple TV with my MacBook Air and, and I watch Screencast Online. And that sweet Liverpool accent, you just can't get enough of it. You can't. He's got that thing down. I mean, that's just built in. You know, cred right there. So. Yeah, you subscribe, you learn about the Mac, you get Don's voice for free. There you go. There you go. And one of the nicest guys in the world to boot. So thank you, Don. But uh, so we've we've got a couple of housekeeping things that that we wanted to cover. Uh, first off, you may remember one of our most popular workflow episodes, episode 50 with David Wayne. I, I just saw uh, a, a TV commercial that had this movie with with Jennifer Aniston and it sounded vaguely familiar. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's it. Wonderlust yeah. is here. And you may recall when we recorded with David, he was in the middle of post-production on Wanderlust, the movie he had just uh, written and directed. And it's coming out. The movie's coming out. So support our fellow geek, David, and go check out that movie and uh, give him as much love as you can. See your local theater for details. There you go. Right. Also, did you know that we have a wiki? We have a wiki? Yeah, I didn't know it. It's uh, it's on the 5x5 five five side. If you go to the specific site for any episode, in this case, it would be uh, 5x5.tv slash MPU slash 73. There's a wiki there, and you can log in and add information, anything you think we missed. Hmm. Go ahead and put it in there. Wow, that's a great resource. I keep hoping that people will make a Wikipedia page for me, but that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, me either. I'm not, I'm not important enough. Me neither. Don't <laughs> worry. You'll get one long before I do. Uh, we'll see. So don't really care to be honest. Yeah. Um, so let's, uh, so what's going on next? Next, we are uh, going to talk all about remote access in your Mac. Yes, we are. We're going to talk about how to get to a windows PC, how to get to a Mac and all the various ways you can do that from your Mac and your iOS devices. Uh, some of our favorite software solutions and services to make that happen. Uh, but in the meantime, if you want to check out all the links to all the great stuff that Don talked about in this show, you can find links to everything we talked about in our show notes. That's at www.macpowerusers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MPU. Yes. And uh, if you want to get feedback to us, just drop us an email to feedback at macpowerusers.com. Yeah, we're also on Twitter. The Twitter stream's been fairly active. The show is at Mac Power Users. I'm at Katie Floyd, and David is at Mac Sparky. Uh, we'd like to thank our sponsors for this show, uh, Gazelle, the Omni Group, and One Password for supporting the show today. Right, and uh, we love iTunes comments. Thank you for all those people who have, have given us iTunes comment recently. You know, we we were featured again this past weekend in the uh, iTunes Store, and that's directly as a, as a result of your comments. So thank you very much. More comments brings uh, more exposure. And it just yeah. gives me that warm, fuzzy feeling. And I've heard from several new listeners that discovered us through that iTunes feature. So, you know, we got new Mac power users in the family because of it. So thank you everyone for helping bring those people into the fold. All right. Well, uh, David, I will see you next time to talk all about remote desktop. And until then, thanks for listening. I can hardly wait. <laughs>